0: These are crazy times for white guys. We are not the most popular people on the planet. It doesn't matter if you grew up rich or poor, in a city, small town, suburbs. If you're a white dude, you know what I'm talking about. We've got some work to do. This podcast is about white guys who are breaking the mold. And they're doing things that are causing a whole new kind of happiness for everybody. I'm John Poor. On today's episode, we'll hear from a couple guys who are making it easier for white folks to talk to each other about things like racism and white supremacy and what we can do about it. For many of us white guys, we feel isolated when it comes to talking about these things. Maybe we'll say something stupid, or our friends will ax us from the barbecue list. Well, Mike Feldstein and Dan Zanes are two friends who have figured out how to get white people over the hump and actually have these conversations. They've known each other since childhood, so I wanted to learn how their friendship tied into their interest in all this. So with that, Mike, let's start with you.
1: Okay, um, Mike Feldstein, I um, just turned 60 last week and getting ready to... Um, Retire from a 37-year career as an elementary school teacher. Um, I've always lived in Massachusetts. Haven't really moved far away from home. I have two boys, 28 and 25. Wow. Thank you.
0: Dan, let's hear about
1: you.
2: All right. Yeah. I'm, my name is Dan Zanes. I'm uh, I'm a singer. Um, I'm just about to turn 60. And I have a, I have a 26-year-old daughter. And... Um, married i live in in uh, in baltimore maryland where i just moved here from new york my wife claudia and i make music together and uh, the music's primarily for young people uh, but we think of it as all ages music and i feel like uh you know for me i'm 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 happy to be here and talk about the the subjects at hand uh, because i feel like you know, as, as Mike and I have been talking about them over the years, my life's changed in, in, uh, in ways I never, ever could have imagined.
0: And so, grateful to, grateful to be here with you two. Thank you, Dan. So, I understand you guys are buddies and your friendship goes way back. I also understand you've both done projects um, on your own around anti-racism and also at least one project, your audio book together that I know of. um, Share a little bit about your younger life, how you met, and how things evolved here.
1: So Dan and I met, I think, when we were like 14 years old. We both went to the same summer camp. It was an overnight camp in New Hampshire, a fairly progressive camp that was not like the camps that all of my friends were going to. My friends were going to sports camps, those kinds of things. This was more... um, theater, arts, music, my parents thought it was really important for me to go to a camp like that because I was not interested in any of those things. And um, so then, I think I was 14 or 15, I met Dan, I was working at, I was a swimmer, so I was working at the the waterfront and Dan was um, working in the kitchen and for whatever reasons we became very, very close. You know relationships i think in summer camp are especially intense because you're there the whole entire time 24 7 so we became really close in a very very short period of time and i don't know i think it was because we were both in a unique situation we were younger we were older than campers younger than counselors so we ended up being together um and we just continued that friendship and it was a very very close i remember going to his house in new hampshire um when we had a couple of days off But I, what I distinctly remember Was being When I was 16 years old I went up to Dan's Over the December break And it was um, It was New Year's Eve And his mom was out And it was about Four in the afternoon <clears throat> And I'm We just I'm counting down To when we can start partying And so I'm like Dan so what do you want to do And Dan says oh, I think we should I think we should Clean the house For my mother I thought would really Make her happy I thought he was kidding I've never heard anything like it. So I'm like, okay, next. But in fact, <laughs> uh, he really guy? he really meant it. And <clears throat> he, um, he, it was just something that I'd never even seen before or thought about. Just kind of that sense of like that kind of giving. So then I realized like he was serious. I don't think I ever cleaned it. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was just a different experience that I've had. And we stayed close. And it was one of those friendships where we could then go for a year or two, not talk at all. And within... 10 seconds to be back at summer camp um and not just reminiscing either it wasn't those like Do you remember this remember that but it was you know the the friendship was continuing to grow we were talking about the things we were doing you know when he got involved in the rock and roll band you know they moved to boston the Del Fuegos, and so we saw each other a lot then but we went for years sometimes two or three years without communicating that much but again it was always back right to where we were and that was the way the relationship went um over the years Um, We did have that special bond. And then I started getting involved in anti-racism work as part of my professional development. And I started getting so involved in it that I left the classroom to do that work. And I remember one time I was sitting in my office and Dan called me. And I'm going to pass it over to you now, Dan.
2: Yeah. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. And, and, you know, thinking back to the early years that Micah mentioned, I think one of the things that was so you know that was really good about it I've been through a whole lot in my life in just in terms of an unsettled home and so to be around um, you know to be around Mike and uh, you know like a stable family to me was you know was a beautiful thing and also Mike was my first Jewish friend you know so the first time I had Chinese food was with Mike's family you know these are these are things that they really do stay with you you know so um, so there's a lot of trust in the, in the relationship and um, and and you know so what you you know what, what Mike was leading up to is a you know for me a moment you know w- one of the two pivotal moments in my life you know the first one was around drugs and alcohol when i was 27 and um, and and then this conversation with Mike that i'm about to describe was the second one that was that you know changed the, changed the course of my life what happened is, you know, I, I, I'd been in the rock and roll thing and kind of, you know, burned out and was trying to figure out what was next. And um, and and and, uh, and I started making, you know, my daughter was born, and I started making music for young people. And um, and I called Mike to tell him about the show that I had just played, you know. How incredible it was! This, you know, it was at the public school near my house in Brooklyn, and you know, um, the the mix of kids in the audience black kids, white kids, Arabic kids, Asian, Latino everybody is there, you know. And, and we played a uh, you know multicultural selection of songs to celebrate the diversity of Brooklyn, all that stuff, you know. And Mike had been working with Doctor Doctor Tatum at that point, and he said you know we're just having a conversation you know i was i was all fired up and and um and i could see mike was was enthusiastic too and he said so who are you who are you making music with and i said you know some guys that i know and a couple dads and he said so you know are they white guys and i said yeah because that's all i knew you know in rock and roll that's all i knew is you know four three or four white guys making noise together and um and you know so I had no idea where this conversation was going and he said, Let me ask you something. How do you think the black girls in the audience responded compared to the white boys? And it was such a nutty question. I never even stopped to consider anything like that because for me, this is just hundred percent altruistic. I'm going to play music for kids, man. You know, that's that's the whole deal. And it's a it's 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 good, it's music, kids need it, I'm making it. You know, so all this other stuff wasn't part of my thinking at all. So Mike asked that question, you know, and I and I and I thought about it, and um, and and I had to I had to admit that it was probably a different experience that they were having looking up at the stage, you know, and and um, you know, one of the reasons that this conversation was so important to me is. Because of we had this history, because there's trust, and because of the way that Mike is able to speak about these things, I didn't get defensive. I didn't, you know, I was open to it. I, you know, my mind was open. My heart was open. We're two friends, two old friends having a conversation about something, you know. And in the course of that conversation, I was able to become curious enough to ask if there was a book I could read to learn a little bit more you know Mike started telling me about his work and because I thought the work had nothing to do with me because I'm from New Hampshire man this is you know about people in the south where racism is you know and um, I uh, you know asked about a book he recommended why are all the kids sitting t- why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and um, you know and, and as soon as I got off the phone, I regretted asking about that book because I knew it was gonna make me feel bad about being white you know and it's man I don't want to read this damn thing but it was too late and uh, I'd already agreed to read it and and I was and I was to some degree you know inspired by this conversation so I I read the book and rather than feeling shame or guilt or any of the things that I thought I was gonna feel I felt I felt liberated for me that was a conversation that changed my life because that was an introduction to anti-racism you know so that was the that was you know that that for me was just such a significant fundamental uh
0: moment in my life wow when you said that to him you couldn't have known that that would happen necessarily could you have like what were you thinking
1: Well, going back to it, I I don't remember quite as well as Dan, but as Dan was talking now, I was thinking that it would have been a hard question for me to have asked him right out of the blue. Um, And so my guess is he probably asked me what I've been up to. And I probably talked about what I was up to first, because that kind of opened the door. I was learning about AT racism, doing a lot of professional development, doing trainings for people. Then when Dan asked the question, I'm like, well, I'm going to, and not in a mean way, but I'm going to show him a little bit about what this work is like. Yeah. And so I just said, you know, I'm doing the work. Dan said he did a concert, and then I asked the question. D- that was Yay. my entryway. And so, so what did I... Actually, the truth of the matter is that once Dan read that book, and I've seen it now with a few people, then I knew it was we were on board and we were going to start doing more and more. Um, once you have kind of the aha moment.
0: So what then happened for you? Like, you had this whole thing going on. Dan hadn't opened up this whole thing as much yet. You you planted this seed. And he could have said, yeah, I'll look at that book. And maybe he could have not gotten it. And um, you still would have hung out with him and enjoyed him and been his friend. And it wouldn't be like, you never read that one book I said you had to, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But he did read the book and he did come back and then what
1: happened then i told him about another book and then (laughs) another book and then another book i mean that's that's really what we ended up starting with right and then as he was getting more involved in doing this work and getting more engaged in some of the groups that he was beginning to join and learn more about it you know he'd come back and we'd talk about the experience that he had and it that's when it started being a relationship that was really two-way And so as we started talking then, you know, what he was bringing back from some of his groups, we processed together. Um, And so there was a lot of conversation. And then figuring out what we both, I think, have come to an agreement on is what is an important step for white people, which is having conversations.
0: What are the odds that two best buddies from summer camp kind of decide to point their lives at this so in such a big way. How did you then decide to do, like, Dan, you really helped start constructive white conversations. Is this, how did you know that white people needed to come together and start having these conversations and and it's a thing? Well, what happened was, well, you know,
2: early, early on, um, you know, when I started really getting more engaged, Mike said, well, if you, you know, if you continue, if you continue with this stuff, you're going to end up working with a lot of white people. And and that to me was not, I didn't consider that good news at all. That was totally, that was not the vision I had for myself. I had a vision of this, you know, I had a multicultural, multiracial work in my mind, you know, where everybody's, hanging out, there's laughter, there's food, there's music, there's, you know, social justice work. It was, I had that picture in my mind. So this idea of working with white people, because I hated white people at that time too, you know, so this, that didn't fit into my, my script at all. Um, But Mike was right, you know, he's absolutely right. And, and and what I didn't expect from it was that I'd be working with white people and that it would be, you know, that I'd find so much joy in it. But, you know, what happened was I, so I was, you know, trying to corner white people around New York and, you know, tell everybody what's up. And it's frustrating me and it's turning people off. And then I read this article called um, something about the anti-racist lone wolf. And um, and man, I mean, it just it just hit me that that's who I was. I was the anti-racist lone wolf running around making a mess of things. And so I immediately tried to find anti white anti-racist community in New York and I found um, I found a group and, and it was real small and it seemed kind of you know weird that there were only six people in New York City that that were interested enough in anti-racism to go out on a Monday night and sit at a conference table in midtown you know but but that's what it was and I was and in spite of that, and in spite of there not being a clear mission for the group or anything. I was grateful to be with other people that had this common interest and uh, common desire. What I started to feel was, um, because as I mentioned, I was, uh, because I was also growing as a person in in the, you know, the 12-step recovery spaces, I was really becoming more and more clear that there was so much healing that can, so much healing happens when two people sit down and talk to each other, identify with each other and share openly about where they've been and where they hope to go and share the common problems and look for the comments, you know, look for the solutions that there's so much, so much that can transformation and healing that can happen in that setting. And so we started, constructive white conversations as a way to uh get that piece of the puzzle. This is about ten years ago. And so it was what you know, it was what Mike and I had been doing all along, but in a format um that was gonna be uh communal, it was gonna be uplifting, an easy entry point. This is my interpretation about New York anti-racism at that time. There was a lot of focus on this, on, you know, making white people uncomfortable. Or anyway, I, if if I had gone, if I had gone to my first twelve-step meeting and people were, you know, counting on me getting, you know, trying to make me uncomfortable, I wouldn't have gone back, man. You know, and I wouldn't be alive today. So I felt, you know, it just started to feel like we got to be comfortable enough to open up. And relax and and get down to business. And nobody needs to make me uncomfortable. And and let's not focus on that. Let's focus on, you know, um, the the positive side of it. Because there is so much positive side.
0: When Rebecca and I attended your constructive white conversation um, after our first time, when we got off and talked to each other, we were like, that was so easy to go to and we said stuff that mattered and then we wanted we actually we we were actually looking forward to the next conversation. (laughs) Mm.
2: Uh, That's it man. You know, I think Mike and I talk about this all the time. It doesn't matter where people are at when they come in, if they continue to come back, I have complete faith that change will happen. Change will happen. So what we're doing is creating conditions and trying to create an atmosphere that people want to come back to.
0: And people, uh, people can come from anywhere, right? They don't. I I saw that it was neighborhoods that had the conversations. But how does it work? Can they come? I came from Montana, so obviously they can come from anywhere. But are there ideas about if it grows, as it grows?
2: Yeah, as it grows, it's all. I mean, we're going to keep the virtual keep the virtual piece it's really working well for us and um and that and and so that's you know the idea is to create a solid template that we can use and you know th- i mean this might be a good transition to into you know if mike wants to talk about what he's been doing with something like this model that we've actually been able to do together which has been awesome
1: Yeah, I just want to go back a little bit. I think the other important piece around this is I spent 25 years walking into rooms predominantly with white people saying, you know, we're going to have a conversation and you're going to feel uncomfortable. Uh, Then we'd have the conversation. I made them feel uncomfortable and didn't see them again. So there's no real alternative. If getting people in a room and telling them they're going to feel uncomfortable and making them feel uncomfortable leads to the dismantling of racism, I'm all for it. But you lose too many people along the way, and it's the very people who are wondering about this work who end up showing up at a presentation, and then are made to feel uncomfortable and own their privilege in front of everybody else. They're going to do it once, and they won't be back. And so, you know, I've learned from Dan that the goal here is now let's get let's get people back. As long as they keep coming back and we're still talking, then change is possible. And as and Dan said before, you know, in the work that I did you know, more recently with some schools, the kind of transformation and change that I saw among staff, simply by getting together and talking and not judging and not having the answer, but just having people talk and reflect and come back week after week, the transformation among staff was incredible.
0: Came up with a way to help your fellow teachers be better anti-racist teachers and then you also did it with a church group and the way you did it was because because i had you on a call with one of the teachers in my town once and you said get get some teachers together but don't let them come up with lesson plans yet on what they're going to teach let them just talk about how racism and white supremacy shows up in their own lives is that what correct kind of what you're talking about right now
1: Right. So I think the people who have come and done it at my school, uh, you know, you had mentioned they became better teachers. they be better people is, a, is too judgmental. But, you know, as Dan wants to talk about, they just had a whole different sense and a different view and perspective. And that translated into their teaching. Um, and now we are more focused on the on the practical stuff of the lesson plans. But people had done that personal work and you know, people are action oriented. So when I worked with a church group, it was a lot about, you know, what can we do? What can we do? And I'm like, just take a breath. Um, what we're going to do first is just talk. But people often talked early on about how do I talk about this with my family? Okay. You know, um, younger teachers talked a lot about that at first. Um, and some of the stories they told were just incredibly powerful, especially by the end of the summer. Basically, what this work does is get white people in a place so when they go and have a mixed-race conversation, they can be able to have it. Um, what I was learning at my school district was that They were having these mixed-race conversations early on as an introduction, and these teachers of color had worked with these white teachers for many years, and then they have this conversation, and the white teachers are saying some things that, you know what, need to be said, but probably not in front of the people of color who just cannot believe that the person who's a colleague for the last 15 years is kind of saying these kinds of things, and it ends up being a very painful experience. What started with good intentions ends up with a lot of hurt feelings. Right. Yeah. And so white people are afraid to talk. People of color don't want to hear it. And so, you know, making the case for, look, we just need white people to do your work. And then when you have the conversation, you know, as a whole group, it will be much more powerful and much more effective. When someone sticks you in a room with four other people or five other people and say, talk about what's up for you. Well, that now you're going to begin to start doing the work you need, you absolutely need to do so that you can be an effective co-conspirator. Talk about what a co-conspirator is. So co-conspirator, uh, I, I, you know, the best thing to do is read or go watch the video by Patina Love, who does an incredible job describing the difference between an ally and a co-conspirator. And a co-conspirator is somebody who will put themselves out there, somebody who will take risks, where an ally will talk the talk but when it's time to put up a shut up, we'll go and read the next book by Tanahisi Coates. I mean, that's like exactly what she says. And she shares the story about Brie Newsom, the woman who climbed the pole to take down the Confederate flag in South Carolina. But she also talked about the white co conspirator who was with her that day and he held the pole. And he put his hand on the pole because he knew that if the police came they might, you know, shock the pole and you know to protect her he put his hand on so they wouldn't do that and so she really talks about the difference and the clearest that i've heard is that there are people who stand outside that gate and look at the pole and there are people as white people who um go over the gate and hold on to the pole and that really being the difference but as co-conspirator somebody who's willing to to take a risk
0: If I'm a white guy, I'm driving down the freeway, coming home from, I don't know, shopping for groceries or my job or something, the soccer, my kid's game, I don't know what. I'm driving home, I I put this podcast on, and I hear these two guys talking, Mike and Dan, and I'm like, what is this stuff about anti-racism and co-conspirators and white supremacy and all this stuff like what is in it for me why would i step into this like what's in it for me to step into this path what would you guys say to that
2: that's a great i'm glad you i'm glad you asked that question i think that's kind of it that's kind of an it's easy to talk about everything else and not get to that i would start by saying when i when i stopped drinking and drugging when I was 27. I did it because I was in so much pain I couldn't imagine an alternative. Um, But what I found was there was something beyond any imagination that I had on the other side. No one could have explained it to me. It was something I could only experience for myself. It was also something I could see in other people, which is which is a sense of liberation and a sense of of connection and possibility for humanity. And those are all the the same things that I think are possible when when I was introduced to anti-racism way back when I found in trying to be a part of the solution, um, I found the possibility to achieve humanity I started to feel connection, I started to see possibilities for being a useful member of society, um, but no one could have explained that to me. I needed to have the experience myself, and it was also something that I, had, my entire life I'd been taught not to look at this stuff. You know that's the crazy thing. I've been t- I've been so deeply conditioned not to look at it, or if I did, I'd feel ashamed and, and guilty and horrible about being white. You know all this stuff that I, that I had absorbed, but when I started looking at it, I felt liberation and and um, and I began to see that I I had purpose here and um, and there was there was some joy in that. You know, so there's so my life got better in every single way. In my life. You know, and I just, I I want to keep the sense of purpose up front so that it doesn't sound like this is a self-serving experience, but it also gives me a sense of purpose in dismantling white supremacy, which is absolutely, absolutely necessary, I believe, if we're going to have a a whole and healthy
0: society. Okay, so in the U.S., the leading group that that has the most suicide is is white men Mm -hmm. and you're saying things like um i felt way more connected way more on purpose i had more meaning um these are big things to report from doing anti-racist work yeah mike would you
1: add anything to that um Just a couple of things. One, you know, I think to start, and this is what Dan reminded me of, of the joy around doing this work. And too often, you know, people look at this, when you said, like, why should I get into this work and all this pain and all that? You know, it reminds me of, you know, I'm 60. I've been on a diet for 55 years, on and off. (laughs) And, um, you know, when I've been good, um, you know what? It isn't, some of the stuff is uncomfortable. You know, it is a little unpleasant, uh, you know, making some of those choices. But the longer I do it and the more I do it, the better I feel. And, you know, once I've been good for a while and dropped some pounds, I feel really good. So I know when I diet, there's a payoff. The problem to the person listening to the podcast on the way home is no one ever talks about the payoff. They just talk about this is going to be hard. This is going to be unpleasant. You're going to confront your privilege. But there is another side to it. And the other side is um, feeling like the work you're doing is important. The work you're doing is valuable, and even more in a personal level, I've made connections with people, both personally and professionally, that I never, ever, ever would have made. I'd like to think I could have made them, but it never would have happened, and um, that's number one. Number two, how I raise my own kids, and so when Dan pushed me to write this book with him, which I never wanted to do, because, uh, you know, ambition is not one of the words I would use to describe me, but he, <laughs> but he's, he's more persistent than I am lazy. And I finally put the, put it into words, um, and we were done, and even if it goes nowhere, it went somewhere because my kids could read it. And, um, and that's what matters. And so I think the piece of like, no, it's just life gets a little better. It, well not it gets a lot better, it gets a lot richer. Um, Dan has mentioned before. Um, I've met the various women in his life. There's nobody like Claudia. Um, mm-hmm. nobody like her. and had he not done this work, that ne- that they would have never met never yeah. mind being connected they never would have met um yeah. and so i think like those kinds of things um just have have made my life richer yeah. the problem around doing this work is we don't spend enough time talking about that too
0: that's really helpful to hear because um there was a there was a stage i was at a few years back where like i i have a good bunch of friends who know me really well But I was sometimes concerned about, I was always the one bringing up the let's talk about white supremacy conversation. And I was (laughs) kind of feeling like I was on thin ice. Like, dude, if you bring that up again, we're not gonna wanna hang out with you. Um, I I actually, it actually turned and I found the opposite. They actually grew more into the conversation. And now we've had some, and I had to take some risks and, and share some things that were uncomfortable. But then they came around to the conversation much like Dan did with the 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 seed that that you offered up Mike and so there's all these relationships Mm. now that have come about I got guys hanging out in my yard every month that I didn't know before who are up for this conversation so I had no I had no idea that I would actually gain more relationships by venturing into this I thought I was going to lose relationships it's totally the opposite
1: yeah and and, yeah. and and the one and the relationships you have are richer. If you lose a relationship over this, I mean, we've all lost friends in our lifetime, you know, over different things. At least you're le- losing it over something somewhat valuable. That's a great point. It's a little flippant, and it's like giving up on somebody. But
2: I mean, we're just you know we're two guys doing our thing, you know. But but in the in the world that we live in at this moment, I think there are. You know, there are people and there's, there's ways that a culture is being developed. It's, you know, it's, it's very, it's very uplifting. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. You know, it gives me a sense, a sense of possibility.
0: So Mike, what's next for you?
1: Um, well... I'm retiring in june that's that's really what's next <laughs> yeah um so then after that um you know i do think that um the stuff that dan and i are doing right now it does definitely have legs i think there is a place for it
0: it's kick-starting conversations in communities churches organizations right. etc what's next for you dan
2: um continuing with the constructive white conversations that's been ongoing developing materials so that we can we can try and find ways to expand definitely hoping to do more with mike because these you know these six week six week experiences have been incredible so that i'm looking forward to him you know retiring getting his golden parachute or whatever it is that you get and um, and and Claudia and I are putting out a record in uh, in August, which is great. And this is the first time in my life. It's probably I think I've made twenty records now. This is the first time in my life where I feel like I made a record that said what I wanted to say in a whole a whole way. And so um, it's songs that we that we wrote over the last year and we were really trying to be as much of a newspaper as we could and just reflect the world around us and talk about, and because, you know, Claudia is black and I'm white and we're, so we have different perspectives on a lot of things. And, um, so to be able to make a record from, you know, from the view of a, of a interracial couple, you know, felt like a really, you know, a really beautiful thing to be able to do and to, um, You know, a lot of our audience is young people, but we're trying to make something for for everybody, you know, real social music. And so it's, you know, it's it's everything from a a tickling song to a song about reparations, you know, and everything in between. (laughs) And we're doing it with Smithsonian Folkways, which is Pete Seeger, it's Woody Guthrie, it's Lead Belly. So there's a long tradition of um, music in in at that label with music with a sort of a social uh view
0: well i can't wait to listen to
1: it
2: you're gonna love it
1: but i think that yeah. dan forgot to mention that he began his singing career uh, with me at summer camp um <laughs> you, 50 years ago that's it was right 45 years ago we were the kitchenettes that was your group so i mean that's where it all started Mike, oh, that's awesome! Mike could have
2: been the, the third person in the trio if he hadn't gone off into teaching. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: yeah. All right, you guys. Do you have any requests of me? Thank you so much. We really appreciate this. I really appreciate this. And I, yeah, I appreciate being able to do this with
1: Mike. we like doing this stuff. Okay. Hopefully, we'll stay in my, touch.
0: My goal is to get you into Montana. There we go. All right. Sounds good. All right, you two. Take care. All right, and, brother uh, John. Thanks so much. See you, man. So we've reached the end of this new white guy episode. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and subscribe. To find out more about us, things you can do, ways to connect with other new white guys, check out our website at thenewwhiteguy.com. If this was your first step towards being a new white guy, we hope it's the first of many have complete faith that change will happen. Hey, just want to give a special thanks to the new white guy team who make this podcast happen. Editor Peggy Poor, may or may not be related to me, and advisors Patrick Brown and Travis Burdick.